You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. So, before I forget, we do have another winner for another Instagram giveaway. I want to do it now, because it just popped into my head, and I am going to forget. So, if you don't know what I'm talking about, my Instagram is packernetpodcast.com. I'll be honest, I don't know if there are more giveaways or not. I don't know how many there are. But um, on the off chance that there are more, you should make sure to go follow Packernet Podcast on Instagram. But the next winner, with a sweet name, is Johnny P. Montano Jr. It like rolls off the tongue, sounds like Tony Montana. Not so sure about the junior, maybe just drop the junior. I know it's weird because you're, you know, you know, but I'm just saying from our standpoint... It's just a sweet name, and, and the junior doesn't help. It's like, um, awesome kid's son. Like, no, dude, just embrace the name. Johnny P. Montano just won himself something. Also, Captain Colby Jack. This dude is just killing it with the names. Picture is like Packers and an American flag and the Grim Reaper. I just respect everything <laughs> about what I'm looking at. I just got a screenshot of his little deal here. Pretty sweet little situation you got there, sir. Anyways, shoot a uh, message to the Packernet Podcast Instagram page thing, and we'll get you hooked up, my man. So, I don't want to not talk about the Buccaneers, because that's important. But I've noticed that there is a lot of chatter about the salary cap lately. Just a lot of it. And um, I don't want to say it annoys me, but I just, I think a lot of it is silly. And let me just tell you what I see. Um, And I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but there's a lot of people who can't figure out what the Packers' plan is for the salary cap, and they can't themselves find a way to get us into the black and assume that the Green Bay Packers are just as stupid as they are. (laughs) I don't agree. I don't think the Packers are panicked a little bit. I think that they're completely fine. I think they've had a plan all along. And honestly, I, I think... For numerous reasons, the idea that the Packers are even slightly concerned about the salary cap is nonsense. First of all, there are several teams that have a worse salary cap situation than the Packers. Every single one of them is going to be in the black. All of them. Beyond that, the most obvious telltale sign is the fact that they're spending money like it's like it's no tomorrow. Every single person on Packers Twitter is saying, we have no money, there's nothing left to do. And then there's like, oh, we just gave David Bakhtiari tons of money. And we didn't just completely backload it and pay him $5 million for next year. Why? We don't have any money. Yeah, we do. We're trying to go out and get wide receivers. We went out and got Snacks Harrison. All this stuff costs money. If there was any belief, I mean, this isn't a suicide mission. If there was any belief that 
they were going to be in a salary cap hell. They wouldn't be doing any of this stuff. This comes on the heels of a um, report from Rob Domofsky, thanks to J.J. Leahy for picking this out. Here's from an article he wrote. It says, uh, the Packers had a deal on the table that would have made Jones among the top five highest paid running backs in the league, but that was in terms of average per year. The big guaranteed money was missing, so Jones turned it down, opted to change agents, hiring Drew Rosenhaus. The Packers continue to see how valuable Jones is. Just look at his 60-yard run to open the second half in the playoff game against the Rams. But it's hard to imagine. I'm in the middle of reading alarm clock. Thank you so much. It's hard to imagine them upping their guaranteed money, especially if they want to re-sign all-pro center Corey Lindsley. Perhaps the decision has already been made to let him go, or at least the market, blah, 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 blah. So this is a team that just drafted A.J. Dillon, who looks like a promising young running back. They have Jamal Williams, who has really blossomed into a fantastic running back and is not going to command a billion dollars on the market. They have 20, what, 24? We don't really know what the uh, cap number is. Let me see here. According to this, uh, $24.7 million over the cap, and yet they're trying to pay, give Aaron Jones a lot of money. By the way, top five in average per year would be in the $12 million range. Uh, let's see. I'm guessing if you're saying top five, you, you know, the next number you would have said is top three if it was top three, right? So top three is in the $15 million range. Top five, you've got Derrick Henry at 12.5, Dalvin at 12.6, David Johnson at 13. So somewhere between 12.5 and $13 million per year is what was being offered to Aaron Jones. We don't need Aaron Jones, but they're throwing money at it. They're not worried about the cap, dude. I'm really sorry that you can't figure it out, but they're just not. And I know there's some really smart guys trying to move money around, and they're like, I just can't do it, man. I can't figure it out. First of all, and, and let me point this out, um, the main cap guy is uh, Ken Ingles on Twitter, does a fantastic job. He's flat out said he doesn't account for extensions because it's just guessing. That is a massive factor. Devontae Adams is going to get an extension next year. That is going to shave a lot of money. Let me just give you an example. And again, this is just making things up. I don't know. Um, and the, I swear there used to be better tools in terms of showing you what the contract was and what it became. I cannot find that anymore. But let me just show you a little thing that I did here. So the last time David, ba or excuse me, uh, Devontae Adams got a contract extension, it was in 2017. His average per year was 14.5. That first year, in 2017, the cap hit was 4.8. So roughly one-third of the average per year is what was paid out in that first year. Now, granted, this is, again, it's not great because it kind of just takes into account what's already there and there's not a lot of money sitting on the table, whereas this year there is a lot of money sitting on the table. So there's a lot more money to push back if you try to push it back. So it doesn't really work, but again, I can't see those details. But just to give you an example... So one-third, 33% of his average per year was paid out in that first year. If we were to, let's say, pay Devontae, holy cow, I'm getting nervous now. I forgot about the DeAndre Hopkins thing, 27 million. I don't think there's any way we're giving him 27, is there? Let's say that's an anomaly. <laughs> oh, 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 heart palpitations. Julio Jones is getting 22. Let's just say 23, all right? Let's let's say we find a compromise at 23 million. I think that's phenomenal money. If it was the same proportion in year 1. And again, I understand this isn't exactly how it works, but it it just just bear with me. The first year hit would be 7 million dollars. His current cap hit for 2021 
is 16.8, so $9 million less. Now, let's just say that that's not the case, but we drop it down to $10 million in the in this year from 16 to 10. I'm pretty sure if you extend, what did I say? And I, I looked at this before, but it just kind of popped up this morning because it, it's just, it's flooding my feed. And it's like, I got to talk about this because it's kind of driving me nuts. So let's say we drop it down to 10. Now, if you use the same formula that we use for David Bakhtiari, it drops significantly less. But just, I'm j- again, it's just an example because it is guessing. I don't know. But if we, if we paid him $10 million in year one and pushed back a little bit more money into when hopefully this COVID stuff ends and the salary cap spikes, hopefully, we're saving $6.85 million. Just call it 6.8. Now we're $17.9 million over the cap. If we cut Preston Smith, and this is a pre-June 1 cut, which I, I just think that's, I think we let him walk. I mean, we, we could do post-June 1, and, and it's more money, but let's even forget that. Before June 1st, that would save $8 million if we let Preston walk. Now we're at 9. If we let Rick Wagner and Christian Kirksey walk, we're, we're in the black. So Preston, Wagner, and Kirksey gone, and we're good. That's without any restructures, which they could do restructures. It seems unlikely that they would restructure Aaron Rodgers because they just did. I don't know why they would restructure David Bakhtiari when they just structured it. Why not just structure it the way you want to structure it? And again, that's kind of my point. They did structure it the way that they want to restructure it. They already structured it, so they're good with the structure. If the structure is causing problems, they wouldn't have structured it that way. Your panic is not their panic. They have a plan that has them well into the black. Maybe they restructure Zedarius. His cap number is going to be $21 million. That's massive. He's only signed through year 29, 29 years old. So, I, I, well, I guess it's kind of hard to restructure when there's only two years left. And I don't know if you would do an extension with two years left. But it, it feels like there's a lot of leeway here because that's, that's a massive amount of money. And by the way, Zadarius has another example of a sort of backloaded contract. They gave him $16.5 million per year. They only paid him 7.2 in that first year. The cap hit was 7.2 in that first year. So that's 43%. So again, I, 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 I don't know what the plan is, and I, I can't guess what the plan I know Devontae Adams' uh, extension is in the works. I'm sure that there are contract restructuring plans. I'm sure people are getting cut. But again, the Packers clearly are trying to tell us that they have no concern about the salary cap whatsoever. A panicked team does not offer top five running back money to a running back when we don't need him. So it'll be interesting. I think we're all going to learn a lot. Uh, We haven't really seen our cap guy put through the ringer like this. I mean, we know he does a good job, but at the same time, he hasn't really been stressed like this because he was always protected under guys like Ted Thompson, who never really stressed the cap. Gutekunst is putting some strain on him right now saying, make this work. And again, they're not going to enter into anything without a plan to get out of it. And if coronavirus was this big shock to the system that they weren't anticipating, which I'm sure it was, and that ruined their plans, fine. That's a that's a fine theory. The problem is they've been doing all this stuff after coronavirus, the Bakhtiari extension, and the structure of the extension that puts $19 million on the cap. They didn't have to structure it that way. They chose to structure it that way, saying that this would be fine. We can do this and go out and get snacks and make an offer to Fuller, the wide receiver, and make top five running back money offer to Aaron Jones. You get what I'm saying, right? Again, I can't figure it out. I don't know exactly what the plan is, but they have one. They're not just stupid people throwing money around with no regard for the fact that they have to get under the cap and kind of, kind of, kind of soon. 
And I also don't think it means that something really drastic, like they're going to cut everybody, is happening. We see teams do this. The Packers don't do this ever, but we see teams do this all the time. I can't. Every single year, you look at teams that are massively in the red, and it's like I don't know how they're getting out of this one. And they do like two, three, four things, and they're they're done. They're out of it. And it's like oh, wait a minute, wait, 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 what, 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 what did they do? And that's where all this the cap isn't real comes from, because rather than just learning things, we want to just pretend it was magic. <laughs> it's not magic, it's math. If you don't want to do the math, that's fine, but don't just say the cap is fake. I don't know, it's fake. They just they just erased stuff. They just used whiteout, I think. I don't know, they cheated. No, they used math. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what they do. And yeah, some guys are getting cut. There's no question about that. And by the way, the, the post, uh, post-June 1 cuts are also an option. It's a way of kind of extending out the dead cap and spreading out the hit so that you take less of a hit in 2021 meaning more cap space. They have, I mean, they, they, they have a lot of options. For example, uh, I was using exclusively pre-June 1 cuts. If we cut Preston Smith before June 1st, our cap savings will be $8 million. If we cut Preston Smith after, it's $12 million in savings. That's literally half of the money that we are over, because he's got $4 million roster bonuses every year. So if we instead Instead of taking an $8 million dead cap hit, we take a $4 million dead cap hit this year and next year and spread out that dead cap hit. That's, you know, $4 million less this year and kind of just kicking the can down the road a little bit. But again, hopefully the cap keeps going up and we have better better seasons next year. Anyways, I just wanted to address that. I'm, I'm excited to see what they do. Um, obviously, the excitement is tempered by the fact that some of this means losing good players. But it will be a very good learning experience for all of us. But under no circumstances do I think that the Packers are in trouble. Under no circumstances do I think that guys who are core pieces have to get cut. You don't sign Aaron Jones to top five running back money and then cut Zadarius Smith. Sorry, JJ, I'm throwing you under the bus a little bit, but it's just, that's ridiculous. That's like GMing 101. You don't cut core players. Aaron Rodgers, Zadarius Smith, Devontae Adams, David Bakhtiari, Jair, I mean, you, you uh, Kenny Clark. Didn't have a great year, but he is sort of one of those core guys. He, the, the whole point of being a GM is finding elite talent, and then when you finally get it, you can't let it go. Now, you, there is a possibility that you put yourself in a situation where you do too good of a job, and you have too like if everybody on your player turned out to just be elite, you know, every draft pick was a hit, you went out in free agency, got some guys that became hit, you, you literally can't pay everybody, but I don't think the Packers are at that point. They may be a little surprised by, by how good things are turning out, including Aaron Rodgers. That was one of their outs, right? It's possible Aaron Rodgers doesn't take a step and then, you know, but nope, that turned out great. And Zadarius turns out he's great. And Devontae, he just keeps getting better. And Bakhtiari, he's phenomenal. Adrian Amos possibly could have been a cut, but he's playing phenomenally. So that's probably not going to be a thing. Kenny Clark is great. Jair, and it's like, okay. Corey, maybe we cut. Oh, nope. Best center in football. Okay. Right. It's kind of getting difficult to, to navigate. But again, Aaron Jones is low priority, and they're looking at him like, no, nah, we can keep him. It just it just tells me, it signals to me no fear whatsoever. And again, because of coronavirus, there's a lot of teams that are in the red right now. The Packers are $24.7 million in the red. The Falcons, 32.7. The Eagles, 52.2. And the Saints, 96.2. Every single one of those teams is going to be in the black. Every single one. Now, obviously, some of these teams are going to have to make painful cuts like the Saints. That's going to be a, a clinic right there in terms of uh, learning about the salary cap is finding out how the Saints get in the black. I think it obviously starts with Drew Brees goes bye-bye. Marshawn Lattimore is going to get an extension. 
et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they, they got a lot of work to do here. But also at the same time, the, the more you're in the red, in the negative, the more big dollars you have to work with. Part of the problem with the Packers is there's not that many like $10 million guys that give you leeway. They've got so many guys over $10 million you can either cut, extend, uh, restructure. You know, Cam Jordan, uh, Teron Armstead, Michael Thomas, Demario Davis, who's going to be gone. Uh, Marshawn Lattimore, Taysom Hill. I mean, geez, Taysom Hill, $16.1 million. What in the world? Janoris Jenkins, Emmanuel Sanders, uh, Andres Pete, yuck. He's like the worst player on their entire team. They're a little bit stupid, but David Onyemata. I mean, just, just on and on and on. There's so many guys. So there's, there's the more money you owe, the more money you have to work with, right? There's obviously a lot sitting there that you can play with. So, anyways, them's my thoughts on that. I'll leave that be what it is. I'm not saying the Packers are in a good spot. Obviously, this is part of the price you pay when you go all in. It's part of the reason why Ted Thompson didn't do it very much, because he didn't want to be in this position. And it does mean that certain guys that the Packers otherwise would have kept, you know, whether or not we keep Corey Lindsley would never have even been a question in the past. Maybe even Aaron Jones wouldn't have been a question when, as good as he is. Kevin King probably would have gotten some kind of a, a low-end... I mean, all these things... You know, back in the day, Ted Thompson, you know, we, we would come into the season with like 30-ish million, 25, 30 million dollars, and it's, you know, you offer these contracts, you kind of slightly backload, and you just you stack five, six free agents, no big deal. You need to let some of the low-end guys walk, but it's just, it was never really a question. This causes those things to come into question. This causes some guys that we maybe would have otherwise kept to walk. So it does cause problems. I'm not saying that you can spend with no consequences. There's going to be consequences. I'm just saying there's already a plan in place that has them in the black. They've got it all figured out, including the about $10 million that you're going to need to sign your uh, draft class. Fortunately, at pick 32, you're not spending as much money on your your draft class. That'll be one saving grace. And uh, <laughs> the other funny thing is they've, they've got Brian Gutekunst has also talked about how they want to address free agency in terms of guys that they're going to be looking at in free agency with what money again they already they have a number in their mind of they don't see the red they see black they already have a number in their mind of how much money they have to use that's in the black they've already got it mapped out now they can adjust it when they start looking at well we should bring in a guy then they got to go back and adjust that number like snacks or whatever however much that's going to impact 2021 you know funches whether or not he's coming back or how that's all going to work out and, and there might be some, some big stuff happening, right? There might be a big cut that I didn't see coming. But I think that they're going to keep their core guys, and they're, uh, they're, they're comfortable with where they're at. And, I mean, if, if we want to play games like, like what I do all day every day, where I pretend to, like, know stuff and dig around and try to predict things and, like, play games where I try to come up with the game plan, obviously that's me just playing, right? We're all, we're all just playing. The point is, though, the game we need to be playing is not can we get into the black, but how will the Packers get into the black? Can you find a creative way to make it happen? It's not if, it's how. And they already have a plan. If you want to pretend to try to figure out how, to, how they're going to do it, go for it. But it's completely futile to act like, well, there's, we're doomed. There's nothing to do here. We're, we're in trouble. They're, they're in salary cap hell, which is a term that gets thrown around for teams that we pretend to can't find a way out and do every single year. Like we've been saying for the Vikings for five years. But yet they keep signing their own guys every single year. Guys that are garbage, right? Like that... Who is it, Barr? I think it was Barr. Barr is, has never really been that good of a linebacker. He left. That was a godsend. He started feeling sad that he was leaving, and, and the Vikings are like, come on back, we'll give you billions of dollars. And they just paid him a billion dollars. He's not a good linebacker. 
They're like, ah, I don't care. It's like, you don't have any money. Meh, so what? Come on back, big guy. Who's who's the biggest cut that they've made? What, Everson Griffin? <laughs> what is he? He's not doing anything. He's a terrible football player. They're not missing Everson Griffin. Stephon Diggs wasn't a salary cap casualty. He forced his way out. They're fine. And they've been doing this kind of stuff for years, years of making questionable decisions, and their guys don't even pan out the way ours guys, our guys do. We go all in on guys like Zadarius, and, and, I mean, Billy Turner was supposed to be the big swing and a miss, and that's been a godsend for us. They're going to be okay. Stop panicking. Especially now. We're, we're trying to focus on a Super Bowl, and people are panicking about the salary cap. We'll worry about that when the time comes. Got me talking about the salary cap. We're a couple days away from a really huge game. Relax. It's fine. Everything is going to be all right. Don't worry about a thing. You know I had to do that. Well, since this has spiraled completely out of control, why don't we go ahead and take a break right here. We'll come back and kind of get back to the things that matter. The Packers moving on to play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We'll be right back. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing. But they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from arenaclub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. So I kind of, I had a plan before I spent all that time talking about a salary cap, and it's going to be hard to cram all this into... Just the second half. But I got a good amount of time. I got an early jump on that. What I would like to do is a very, very brief overview of the team. Kind of top to bottom. Here's what they got. Here's where they're at. Etc, etc. And I think we can do that if I can be concise, which is kind of a stretch. But why don't we start with the quarterback? Maybe we'll just do offense and we'll have to do defense tomorrow. I don't know. I've been talking about Tom for quite a while now. Um, largely because of how good he's been down the stretch. Now, the, the big... Uh, objection, I guess, is it's it's easy to be 
this good against really bad teams, but I don't think that's giving him quite enough credit. As I've mentioned, he was given technically two elite grades, but one was an 89.6, and and you could almost say four if you look at his 87.7 as being basically elite. That's that's a heck of a stretch, and I, I said, I don't remember what it was, something like he hasn't done that since 2007 or something. I mean, it's a massive feat. That's why I was so impressed with Rashawn Gary getting back-to-back elite grades, following it up with like an 86 or something. I mean, that's that's really impressive. It's not easy to get elite grades from PFF. It's very hard. They don't just throw them around. I mean, there's a lot of them out there, but again, just back-to-back and everything, it's, it's tough. And so, yeah, you look, well, one was Detroit, one was Atlanta, one was Washington, big whoop. Well, Washington has a good defense, first of all. Second of all, he didn't get an elite grade against Minnesota, who had one of the worst defenses. A 74 against Carolina. He only got a 79 when he played the Packers. That was a beating. So it's not just, well, if you play bad teams, you're going to get an elite grade, right? I mean, that's that's being a little too flippant. Now, I do want to, we'll have to do it tomorrow, kind of look a little bit closer into how good this team actually is, uh, similar to what I did with L.A. There was a lot of question about, yeah, but they haven't played anybody. But when you actually look at how they did compared to how everybody else does, they still came out well ahead defensively. And I want to do that with Tampa, but we'll have to do that tomorrow. So point is, though, he's been really hot down the stretch. Um, the good news is that his worst game since week 12 came this past week. So he had an 80 overall grade against Minnesota, then an 87, 93, 89, 90. This past week was a 75. So that's the dip we, that I've been waiting for because I, I need to see that he's a human being, and he was a human being. Statistically, you can see that the massive drop-off just from, I mean, if you look at from when the elite grade started, 390 yards, 350 yards, 400 yards, 380 yards, and then 200 yards. I mean, the, the exact was 199. He didn't even crack 200 yards. He also had a fumble, which hurt his grade quite a bit. So 199 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Not the greatest thing ever. If you look at his overall grades, depending on the distance and whatnot, um, the idea that he can't throw the deep ball is kind of always was nonsense, but it's continuing to be nonsense. There's no old age issues. In fact, some of his highest grades have come um, on deep throws. For example, his highest graded passes are deep shots to the right side. So right hash beyond 20 yards, 20 of 38, 653 yards, six touchdowns and a pick, 126.6 passer rating. Obviously, like most quarterbacks, he's he's kind of similar to Aaron Rodgers, 95.4 when he's not under pressure, but a 65.6 when he is under pressure. When under pressure, 63 completions of 147 attempts, which is only 42.9% completion percentage, 799 yards, 5.4 average, four touchdowns, five picks. So clearly, under pressure, the guy is struggling. And I think that's been a big part of the success recently, is not a ton of pressures. Week 17 against Atlanta, for example, only three pressures the entire game. All three were hurries. Not a single sack or hit in the entire game. Um, In the wild card game, there were 14 pressures, but only one sack, four hits, and nine hurries. That was against Washington. This past week, only eight hurries against a very good pass rushing team. Which has got to be frustrating, because that was a massive... uh, Part of what was going to be successful for New Orleans was getting that front uh, assaulting Tom Brady. They only managed eight pressures, not a single sack. There were two hits and six hurries. So obviously that's going to be a big component for the Green Bay Packers is generating the amount of pressure that they did last week. And I think there's there's a lot of potential here. Um, if we look from their offensive line from left tackle to right tackle, left tackle Donovan Smith, certainly not an elite football player. Um, he gives up a pressure just about every single week. He has six sacks given up on the entire season. For contrast, the most sacks given up by any Green Bay Packer, Lucas Patrick, gave up three sacks. That's quite the contrast. 
He's also given up 38 pressures, the most pressures any Green Bay Packers has given up this season. His Billy Turner has given up 26. The next highest is Lucas Patrick with 18. So Billy Turner has given up way more pressures than anybody else. Almost nobody has given up any sacks. Donovan Smith would be our worst offensive lineman if he was our offensive lineman. Unlike some of the guys that we've played recently with the Titans, the uh, the Bears, and the and the Rams, teams that have really bad pass blockers but really good run blockers, um, Donovan Smith is not really in that category. The last three weeks, his run blocking grades have been 59, 53, and 63. So now he doesn't give. He's not a sieve, right? This is a slow bleed, getting to six sacks, nine hits, and 23 hurry. Again, he'll give up like one or two a game. He's averaging, ugh, yeah, let's call it one or two a game. We're talking some kind of pressure per game. But that's just one guy. That's the point. If we move on to their left guard, Mr. Ali Marpet, however you say his name, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Elton Jenkins in that one week he'll be elite and the next week he'll be not great. And he's he's th- th- this Marpet guy is much more extreme. For example, if you look at weeks 12 and 13, in week 12 his pass blocking grade was a 3. A 3. I've almost never seen that. The next week was an 85. The week after that was a 90. So he's all over the map, and that's for pass blocking and run blocking. Some weeks he's great, some weeks he's terrible. So, for example, pass blocking four weeks in a row, starting in week 14, 85, 89, 87, 84. Elite, right? Not a single pressure down the stretch. The last two weeks, a 56, giving up two pressures. This past week, they gave him a grade of 29. He only gave up one pressure, but clearly he was getting beat every single play. He's getting embarrassed and they just weren't getting to the quarterback or something. I, you'd have to go back and watch why. But, I mean, that's a horrendous grade. Now, he hasn't given up any sacks. He has given up 13 pressures. So that's that's not a ton. And, again, it, it it's hard to say what we're getting because I don't know which version is going to be showing up. I mean, if it's, if it's the really, really good version, this is one of the best guards in football. If it's the bad version, he's just going to get walked all over. And the good news is he's he hasn't been very good for a while. And he tends to go on these streaks... For kind of long periods of time. The first four weeks, he was pretty good. Then he went three weeks of being average. Then he was three weeks of being bad. Then he was three weeks of being real good. He's been two weeks of being pretty bad. So he should have one more bad game in him. He tends to go in three or four week stretches. Such a weird guy. I don't know. I don't know what to make of him. Also, something to consider. Um, I know I, I talked about. It's it's not usually just the competition that determines whether you're a lead or not. But if we look at it, New Orleans has a really good defensive front that he was terrible. Washington has a good defensive front. He was terrible. Atlanta has a terrible defensive front. He was great. Detroit has a terrible defensive front. He was great. Atlanta, again, terrible defensive front. He was great. Minnesota, bad defensive front. Uh, great pass blocking grade. Kansas City, one of the best defensive tackles in football. He had his three overall grade. The Giants have a good defensive line. He had a 45 overall grade. So there seems to be a direct correlation. Unfortunately, the last elite game he had before that was against Green Bay. Green Bay needs to step it up because if they can get Kenny Clark to play at his best, I think he's going to run straight over this guy. It, it, it almost reminds me of, and I've referenced this several times because it's the only thing I can think of, and I was so bad in Madden, I didn't really know what I was doing. But occasionally you'd have somebody that would call a play and you just didn't know what to do to stop it, and they just keep calling the same play over and over and over and over again. I feel like that's kind of this guy, right? I mean, he, he's really good at being a guard, Unless you got somebody that's just better, and then they just seem to beat him every single play. Like, he just can't stop you if you're... It's just, it's weird. I very rarely have seen something that black and white. Anyways, that brings us to center Ryan Jensen. Ryan Jensen is one of the worst centers that we've seen in terms of pass blocking. Competent run blocker. In fact, he's gotten a lot better at it. He didn't really turn the corner until week 15. He's been pretty solid at that, but as a pass blocker, he's been horrendous. 
I mean, again, you very rarely see 30s, 20s, teens, single digits. He's got he's got two grades in the teens since week 16. In terms of statistics, he's given up four sacks, six hits, 17 hurries for a grand total of 27 pressures. That would be second worst on our team. But again, the grades tell me that, and, and look, if, if you're a team that's going to you know throw the ball quickly, you know, Tom Brady is good at just getting the ball out if there's pressure or whatever the case may be good at evading pressure. A lot of these are not materializing, but what I'm telling you is they're watching this and saying, this guy's just getting beat all the time. And he just got straight up whooped against New Orleans. Again, only two pressures in that game, so you'd have to go back and see what what exactly was happening. But as a pass blocker, he got destroyed. He hasn't had a good game since week 14 against Minnesota. That was one of four games where he had at least a 70 overall grade. Week 14 against Minnesota, week seven against Las Vegas, uh, week four against the Chargers, week two against Carolina. Last time against Green Bay, he had a 27 overall grade. So maybe go back and watch what he did against the Packers if you want to go back and rewatch that game. That was his fourth worst game of the season, which is shocking to have a 27 overall grade and it's your fourth worst game. So he's a bad pass-blocking center. He just is. At right guard, Alex Kappa, very similar to left guard. Some weeks he's very good, some weeks he's terrible. His last five weeks, 80, 85, 45, 85, 38. I just, I don't know what to even make of that. It's so weird to be that wildly inconsistent. I, I Again, I think Elton Jenkins is kind of that way. Maybe it's just more offensive linemen tend to be that way. Sometimes you're just getting whooped. But again, it really just depends who's showing up, I guess. But he has also allowed 29 pressures, which would be worse than everybody on our team. Again, Billy Turner, I believe, was 28. He has by far given up the most pressures. Cap has given up 29. So pretty much these offensive linemen, if they were to replace the guys we have, would be the worst offensive linemen on our team. If Donovan replaced Billy Turner, he would become the worst offensive lineman on our team. If Kappa replaced Lucas Patrick, he would be worse than Lucas Patrick. I mean, his overall grades for the season, 67 pass blocking, 62 run blocking. That's not good. Then you come to Tristan Wirfs, who is their one very solid offensive lineman. Tristan Wirfs is a rookie. He's a very, very, very good rookie. Um, He has not had a single bad pass blocking grade ever. He's had a couple of games in the 60s. He has not had a game in the 60s since week 10 against Carolina. He's been 70s and 80s ever since. He's very good. Run blocking, very inconsistent. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. So this is going to be somewhat of a tough matchup, but what I love is last week when they discovered how valuable Zadarius was just lining up over the note, like as a stand-up nose. They moved him over there, and he was getting pressure almost every single snap. If they're not getting pressure with Zadarius against uh, Tristan Wirfs, they can simply move Wirfs. Excuse me, <laughs> move Zadarius. Well, I mean, they could try to move Wirfs, but if the point is if that's not working, you, you kick Zadarius inside. But even Wirfs has allowed 23 pressures. That would be second worst on our team. This team gives up a ton of pressures. They really do. I mean, a lot. There are, like, two guys on this entire offensive line that aren't, like, s- worst or second worst on our team that have given up less than uh than lucas patrick i mean our guys have get let's see billy turner 26 lucas has given up 18 elton jenkins has given up 16 rick wagner has given up 16 david bakhtiari on this even gave up nine pressures Corey lindsley has given up six pressures all season i know some of these guys missed a little bit of time but it's it's not even close to comparable just to give you an idea of how vastly different these two teams are and again their defensive line dominated us last time. The fact of the matter is, though, I think the massive advantage, the team that should be much more panicked, is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We have the better offensive line. Not even It's not even a question. Now, they probably have a better group of pass rushers than we do. If you look at weeks 14 through 17, um, 
the most amount of pressures that the Packers have generated is Kenny Clark with 13, and Dominican Sue has 17, Shaquille Barrett has 17. So they're, they're definitely getting more pressures than we are. But if you look at sacks, for example, Shaquille Barrett 3, and Dominican Sue 3, sorry, Shaquille Barrett 3, and Dominican Sue, Jason Pierre-Paul, and Zadarius Smith with 2, and then pretty much everybody else with 1. If, however, you add in the divisional round, which it's kind of getting iffy because we didn't play in the wild card and they did, but let's just add the divisional round. Shaquille Barrett has nine press, 19 pressures. Rashawn has 18 pressures. Zadarius has 18 pressures. So interestingly enough, <laughs> if, you, if you add in that one game, suddenly the Packers seem to have the better unit. Because apparently Ndavikin Sue had zero pressures in that last game because he had 17 before we added that. Shaquille Barrett had two, and then Rashawn and Zadarius again had seven this past week. So in order, and, and again, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. I'm leaving out the wild card, but I don't want them to have an entire game advantage. So it's the last four weeks of the regular season and the divisional round. The pressures are Shaquille Barrett, 19, Rashawn, 18, Zadarius, 18, and Dominican Sue, 17, Kenny Clark, 16, Jason Pierre-Paul, 11, and then Golston, 9, Lowry, 8, Nelson, 7, Preston, 7, down, 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 down it go. So even if we want to say you could argue that they're kind of even, again, the offensive line advantage goes to the Packers. I do think the Packers should be getting more pressure. Anyways, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Um, moving on from, uh, let's see, offensive line to wide receiver. And we'll throw a tight end in the mix because that's arguably their better receiving group. If we look at just receiving grades for the season, unfortunately for them, their highest graded receiver uh, was O.J. Howard, who was gone for the season. But that leaves Antonio Brown, who is currently injured, as their highest graded receiver, followed by Mike Evans, followed by Gronkowski, followed by Brait, followed by Godwin. They've got good receivers. Um, and again, even so, the two of their top four are tight end. Breaking down some of the specifics here, Antonio Brown gets a lot of hype, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's a spectacle. So when Antonio Brown gets a touchdown compared to Mike Evans, there's obviously a lot more press. It's all over Twitter, it's all over ESPN, it's all over everywhere because it's Antonio Brown, and we want to make a big deal out of that. Um, the fact of the matter is he, he kind of started heating up, it's seemingly toward down the stretch, if we just look at touchdowns. He went week 9, 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, uh, 14 without a single touchdown. Starting in week 15, he got a touchdown. 16, he got a touchdown. 17, he had two touchdowns. And then the wild card, he had a touchdown. So he's been getting a lot of touchdowns. But outside of week 17 against Atlanta, I mean, you're looking at 35 yards against Detroit, 49 yards against Washington. He had 10 yards and no touchdowns against the New Orleans Saints. And really, down the last four games that they've played, the Atlanta game was the only game in which he graded out really, really well. He had a 90 overall grade against a just pure garbage defense. Now, there's so many guys on this team, you can't just say, well, well you know, Jair's going to lock him down. First of all, Jair's not locking on anybody. He's going to have his time with Mike Evans. He's going to have his time with Antonio Brown. Obviously, the better matchup is Jair on Antonio Brown, Kevin King on Mike Evans, because Mike Evans is a giant human being, and that's kind of the general matchup that you like to see. But it's going to be a little bit of both. But those last four games, in terms of the grades, 68, 90, 65, 51. So, somewhat underwhelming. And again, he has not had, from a yardage standpoint, outside of, you know, hawking a couple touchdowns, he hasn't done anything. Four receptions, 35 yards, two receptions, 49 yards, one reception, 10 yards. On top of that, he is injured. And I know the rumor right now is it's, it's no big deal. How many times did we hear no big deal last week? Now, I don't even know the, the details of it. I don't really care. Other than hoping he is in excruciating pain because he's a garbage human, I, I don't really care. Um, one way or another, either even totally healthy. I don't know that he's the biggest threat in the world. 
the guy's going on 33 years old. So, I mean, yeah, I understand he used to be great. I understand he's a big name. I understand that he, he does a good job and he gets some touchdowns and this, that, or the other. Um, he's been playing all year. He's got one game of over 100 yards. He has five touchdowns the entire season. He didn't start till week nine, but still, it's not it's not a big deal, dude. Mike Evans is sort of different in that he's been massively underwhelming, and this has been, I think, sort of a Tom Brady problem. That was sort of my question coming into this. You had wide receivers that were playing a certain style of offense, and then you bring in Tom Brady that's a very different style of quarterback, and we're trying to tailor the team to Tom Brady. How is that going to work out? Um, it didn't go very well to start. If you look at uh, just from a grade standpoint, again, this is what's considered a premier wide receiver. Starting in week one, 48, 79, 54, 79, 62, 54, 57, 67, 70, 74, 65, 66, 60. Barely, barely average. Borderline subpar through week 14. However, then he just catches fire. Against Atlanta, again, garbage, but whatever. Seven targets, six receptions, 110 yards, 71 was his grade. Against Detroit. 12 targets, 10 receptions, 181 yards, and two touchdowns. Against Atlanta, again, four targets, three receptions, 46 yards. Not great, but he had a 77 overall grade. Against Washington, 10 targets, six receptions, 119 yards. So he's getting massive yarded. PFF has given him glowing great, and everything seems great. However, last week, 55. So there's sort of a growing trend of this team really kind of blew up the last four weeks and then fell off last week. Tom Brady... A lot of the guys on the offensive line, Mike Evans, Antonio Brown, although Brown has been bad for a while now, but they kind of hit a brick wall against Tampa. On the road against a really quality team with a really quality defense, they struggled. They won, and some of these guys were still good, but they struggled. Two targets, one reception for three yards and a touchdown. So he caught one three-yard touchdown, and is all Mike Evans did the entire day. You look at Rob Gronkowski, 31, going on 32. The guy's just not been a very big factor. He's had a couple games where he's really stepped up, so he can flash. Right, last time we played him was one of his four basically good games of the season-ish. I mean, I guess you could say six. He's got a couple that were mediocre. But his third highest grade all year was against Green Bay. He had five receptions for 78 yards and a touchdown. It was his highest receiving grade all year. Go figure. But he also had against Kansas City, six receptions, 106 yards, and he had another big day against Detroit, two receptions, 58 yards, two touchdowns. Other than that, he's been somewhat of a non-factor. Pretty much every game up until Green Bay, he didn't have a single touchdown. His biggest yardage day was 52 yards. He very rarely cracks 50 yards. Seven touchdowns on the season, so maybe about half a touchdown a game. He's one of those guys that mostly isn't a big deal. But if you don't account for him, obviously he's he's a factor. Cameron Braid is the exact same thing. He's had about four good games this entire year from a grade standpoint. From a statistical standpoint, kind of no good games. I mean, he had 80 yards against Washington with no touchdowns. He had a really good grade against Atlanta. That was 54 yards, no touchdown. Um, he's only had two touchdowns on the season. So Cameron Braid, really inconsistent. He's got a, he, The reason his grade is as high as it is is because it's because he's got some really good games mixed in, but mostly a bad football player. Last time he came to, or we played him, it was one target, one reception for three yards. If you look at Chris Godwin, another guy that was a really big guy, um, not having a terrible year. I mean, 953 yards and eight touchdowns is not terrible, but um, it's still a step back. Last year, 1,300 yards and nine touchdowns, had a 90.7 overall grade. This year, 953, eight touchdowns, 75 overall grade. On top of that, he's had a lot of really bad days mixed in. And to make matters worse, two of his worst games all year came the last two weeks. 
uh, against Washington, 11 targets, 5 receptions, 79 yards, and a touchdown. He had 5 drops in that game. Against New Orleans, 7 targets, 4 receptions for 34 yards. He had uh, an additional drop in that game. So I, I think it's kind of similar to Green Bay in that it's not so much the elite weapons, although Green Bay obviously has one, it's the amount of weapons. It's the fact that they can lean one way or another, right? If Jair is shutting down an entire side of the field, they can use the tight ends to stress the linebackers. They can use the other wide receiver to pick on um, Kevin King, who's obviously going to be playing off, right? Stick Chris Godwin over on Jair, and you've got a fast, shifty guy that's going to be able to try to run around Kevin King. Or you give it to Mike Evans and he can run through Kevin King. You know, you get an automatic five yards before anybody even touches you. Then you just try to get as many extra yards as you can. That's generally how I see it. And I think the other factor is you've got a bunch of guys that really can break this thing wide open. None of them have really become elite this year. None of them have been consistently good. Any one of them, though, can have a big game. Right? Gronkowski, Evans, Godwin, Brown. So it's it's... There's not a guy that I'm scared of, but as a group, it's a pretty scary group. Um, at the running back position, um, a lot of consternation about Ronald Jones. He did take a pretty big step, and he does have a pretty solid running grade overall. 205 attempts, 1,040 yards, 5.1 yard average, and 7 touchdowns. Last time he played Green Bay, they gave him 23 carries for 113 yards. Um, this guy does not get a lot of carries, but they really really gave him the ball a lot against Green Bay, and I think that was a big part of their strategy is to just dominate on the ground. 23 carries is the most he's carried all season. He's only done that one other time. That was against Carolina. He got 192 yards in that game, 8.3 yards per carry. So I think it's one of those things where when you got the hot hand, you just kind of run with it. We'll see what happens. I mean, he's getting, let's see, 205, on average about 14 carries a game. You've also got Leonard Fournette that gets a handful of carries here and there. Leonard Fournette did not play against the Green Bay Packers, but he has been getting an increased role, especially recently. In fact, he's actually out-touched Ronald Jones the last two weeks. He's only getting 3.9 yards per carry, so um, definitely has not been quite as dynamic. He's obviously an, an, a talented freak, so I think he's he's one of those scary guys that you look at and say, well, he's not that good, but, I mean, if he hits a hole, I mean, he's he's gone. I mean, he's blazing fast. He's super strong. He's sort of like, I, I would say, where, where we're at with A.J. Dillon. Right, A.J. Dillon hasn't quite turned the corner in terms of really understanding what it is he needs to do, but man, if he gets going, if this offensive line is blocking well, he can do some damage. So if they start opening up some holes, they might just turn it over to Leonard Fournette and let him just blast right through. So, I mean, it's a good, not elite group. I mean, there's a lot of people that, they always, everybody freaks out about the uh, teams running against us. We've gone up against better running backs, better run blocking teams. I mean, you're not going to find anything better than the Tampa Bay or than the Tennessee Titans, except maybe the Baltimore Ravens. Ravens are out. We already played the Titans. Derrick Henry is much better running back than Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones. They have a much better run-blocking offensive line. That doesn't mean they're not going to run and get yard. The Rams last week they ran, they got yard. Not a lot. Didn't even crack a hundred. The running back didn't. But they're going to run. They're going to get some yard. The only concern is, are they going to just completely dominate on the ground the way the 49ers did? Is it going to be such a disaster that we can't get them off the field, we just can't stop the run? Or are they going to be generally successful, but not successful to the point where the, the, you know they can just keep running the ball and not have to worry about passing? 
nobody's been able to dominate the way the 49ers did to the Packers last year, right? You get a couple good runs mixed in, then you try to run on first and 10, you go nowhere, it becomes second and 10, you're not going to run again, you're going to throw, I mean, you're going to get in those positions. And again, the Packers like that. They want you to keep trying because they want you to be in that second and 10. All we got to do is stop you one time. Then in second and 10, if we hold you to a four-yard pass or an incompletion, now you're in trouble. So they like when you try to run, even even if they're not generally successful at it, because we just need to be successful once. If you're going to try to run your way down the field, you got to be successful every single time you run the ball. And the odds are in our favor on that. The odds of you being successful every time you touch the ball compared to us being successful once, and really, I mean, kind of twice, right? It's just the odds are in our favor. Eventually, we're going to get you in a third and long, and the Packers are quite good in third and longs. So anyways, we're going to have to save, I guess, the defense for tomorrow. But uh, again, offensively, it's kind of an up-and-down unit. It's hard to kind of put your finger on it because Tom Brady is really good, but not always as good. And it's just a matter of if you get peak Tom Brady, we're in trouble. If we get average Tom Brady, we're not as in trouble. The offensive line, I mean, some of these guys are, I mean, this could be a terrible offensive line. It could be a halfway decent offensive line depending on, you know, some of these inconsistent guys, if we get the good version or the bad version. And that's probably largely going to depend on how well the Packers show up. If they're playing with fire, they'll probably be able to run through these guys. Wide receivers, again, it's hard to put your finger on it. What version are we getting of Antonio Brown, of Mike Evans, of Gronkowski, of Brait, of Godwin? And, and honestly, the odds that all of them have a bad day are very low. You're going to have at least two of these guys that are playing good football. Tom is, is able to get them the ball. You know, we, we've got Jair, but we don't have enough guys. And I think that's a big part of their success is similar to the Packers again. If it's not working over here, we go over there, right? The run game we've got that works to some degree. We've got good tight ends. We've got good wide receivers. We'll find something, some kind of a rhythm that's working, and we're going to make it work. So it's going to put a lot of strain on the Packers' defense because a lot of the teams we've faced are relatively one-dimensional. Right, the Rams, good running team, terrible passing team. The Bears, good running team, terrible passing team. I mean, the, the, the one comparison, I guess, would be the Tennessee Titans. Um, and obviously the Packers made quick work of that. Remember, when we played Tennessee, that was the number one offense in football. Fantastic running team, but also one of the top quarterbacks in football. Two top wide receivers. A talented tight end in Jonu Smith, who's probably better than either of these tight ends. So, I mean, that was a lethal group. And the fact of the matter is they came to the frozen tundra. They couldn't handle it and they got just run over. That's kind of what we need to happen. Who knows, maybe we'll get lucky Antonio Brown will not wear shoes and he'll burn his feet on the frozen tundra. <laughs> I don't know. I got to take a passing shot at Brown before I before I end the podcast. But anyways, you folks have yourselves a fantastic day. Tomorrow we'll take a closer look at the defense, which I think more people are scared of, and uh, probably a couple other things, but we'll get this thing wrapped up. We'll get a good idea of what this team is. Have a great day. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye.